If you got your Bibles, open up to 1 John as we continue our study in the book of 1 John. We're in 1 John chapter 2 this morning. We're actually going to look at two verses, but I want to kind of talk to you a little bit first just to understand the case of where we're at. We talk about 1 John as that book so that you might know that you know. In other words, John wants you to know that you're saved beyond a shadow of a doubt. As Christians, we need to come to a point where we no longer doubt our salvation. We know that our, our salvation is founded in Jesus Christ. It is established in him, and we are rooted and built up in him, and we have nothing to fear because of our salvation in Jesus Christ. That's the whole purpose behind First John, is that you might know that you know. And we've studied two of the questions or two of the tests that John has so far. One is if you're a Christian, you're going to walk in the light. In other words, you're going to have a desire for fellowship with God. Every single one of us that has surrendered our lives to Christ has a desire to grow in God more and more and more each day. If you find that you are unsatisfied in your relationship with Christ, it's because you recognize you need more of Jesus. I heard a song coming into church today said, I want more of you. I want more of you. And all I can think is that's exactly the Christian's declaring call. We ought to be crying out, God, I want more of you. So a Christian is going to be one who walks in the light, who walks with God, who desires to fellowship with God, to know him more, and to become more and more like him each and every day. If that's true of you, then you can know that that's one question you've got to answer, but you've got 10 more to go. The second one is that you are willing to confess your sins. Now, first it means you recognize from the very beginning you're sinful. And that first confession is, God, I'm a sinner in need of your grace. There's that confession. And then there's the confession of a Christian walk. Because here's the truth. We don't become perfect the moment we get saved. And so each and every day, we may fail God. But as we fail God, the Spirit of God convicts us that we need to confess that sin, make things right with God on a daily basis. So those are the first two tests that we've studied so far. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. When I thought about this, it made me think of court cases. Have you ever thought about that? How many of you, how many of you love court dramas? I mean, you think about it. When I was growing up, my parents made us watch L.A. Law. All right. When, when you grow up in a house in the 80s, you did not change the channel on dad. Now, grandkids, for some reason, could go in there and he'll put on SpongeBob for them. But when I was there, it was whatever he wanted to watch. And L.A. Law was one I grew up with. And there's so many others that have come out, The Practice and Law and Order and all these different courtroom dramas. Some people even like to watch real-life courtroom dramas. You love to follow along with the action on those court cases. You might watch Judge Judy. You know, you might watch... uh, (laughs) You watch all those. Judge Wapner was what I remember. You might remember those different ones, and you follow along with a case, and you're already judging it yourself. You know exactly what you believe, who's right, who's wrong, who's guilty, who's innocent. You've got it down. And so we, we love the idea of court cases, and so we'll watch them. But I want you to understand that the greatest court case of all is coming one day. There's going to be a courtroom in heaven. There's going to be a case that's going to be pronounced. And the question is, how in the world can an unjust man stand before a just God justified in a holy court? That's really the question is, how can an unjust, a sinful man stand before a holy and just God and be justified in that holy courtroom? Because the Bible makes it very clear in several passages of Scripture that we are unjust. Romans chapter 3, 9 and 10 declares there's none righteous, not even one. None righteous. That's you, that's me, that's everybody in here. None of us are righteous before God. There's not one of us in here who can stand before God in our own righteousness. 
In fact, in James 2.10 tells us whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. All you got to do is fail once. A lot of people look back and they say, well, it's all Adam's fault. Adam brought sin into the world because Adam brought sin into the world and he gave us a sin nature. We have the capacity and the desire to sin. Let's just be honest. You sin because you want to sin. You do it because you want to do it. I am so sick and tired of people blaming other people for the mistakes they make. There is nobody to blame for what you do but you. That's it. Don't blame me. I, we are in a blaming society. If you sinned, that's on you. Nobody made you do it. And I hear it all the time. People say, oh, well, if so-and-so hadn't said such and such to me, you got to learn to be Christian and ignore stupidity sometimes. It's that simple. You got to learn to move on. You don't have to answer to everything. You don't have to answer to everyone. You need to be who God has made you to be. The truth is, if you fell in one sin, if you break one law, he says you've broken the entirety of the law and we're all unjust. And Romans 6, 23 tells us the wages of sin is death. You see, so we're unjust. First, I got to get you lost before we can get you saved. Do you understand that, right? We're unjust, we're unrighteous, we're unholy, we, we're in grave trouble, but this is how God does it. He makes us just, Romans 8, and 34, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might have the righteousness of God in him. Romans 3, 24. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 5, 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He did it for us. He did it for us. We could never appeal to God. We could never on our own make our own way there. And therefore, when we stand before God, we have someone that stands with us. That is how a just God can declare unjust man justified in a holy court. It is through Jesus and him alone. Today, we want to look at two titles that Jesus fulfills for all Believers, Listen to how I said that. Two titles Jesus fulfills for all believers. First, Jesus is our advocate. Look at verse 1. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I love the way he begins it. My little children. And a lot of people say, well, was he being condescending? He was not. He was very gentle to the people that he was writing to. You got to understand that John was probably about 90 years old when he wrote this book. His idea was he was being gentle to those within the church. My little children. He loved them. He cared for them. John had probably led many of them to the Lord. And so he was very gentle with them. But he wanted to be gentle. And at the same time, he wanted to speak truth. He says, these things write unto you that ye sin not. He says, I'm writing because you should have a desire not to sin. Now, what drives me crazy is the person who gets saved, who says they surrender their life to Christ, but then says, I can go and live however I want to live. I can do whatever I want to do. I don't have to go to church. I can continue to cuss. 
I can continue to live in debauchery. I can continue to do all the things that I was doing before, but I'm saved, so I'm good. I've got my ticket to heaven. Can I just tell you something? That ticket done been tore up. It ain't working. It's not working. Because to be honest with you, a true Christian is not going to look at it and go, well, you know what? (laughs) I can keep on sinning. I can keep on living the way I want to live. I can keep doing things the way I want to do them because God in his mercy and in his grace is just going to forgive it so I can live however I want to live. Christians aren't going to talk like that. It's just not going to happen. In fact, John says what? He says, I write these unto you that ye sin not. In other words, as a Christian, our desire should be to get closer and closer to Christ every single day so that we begin to look back and we've left that old man behind. Now, it's not to say that we become perfect, but we should be pursuing perfection. We should be pursuing to be more like Christ. He says, I'm writing that you sin not. In fact, Peter understood this very clearly in 2 Peter 2 and verse 22. He says, but it's happened unto them according to the true proverb, a dog is turned to his own vomit again, and a sow that is washed in her wallowing in the mire. He says, in other words, the problem is a lot of people are like dogs. They just return to their vomit. Now, if you've ever seen a dog, they'll eat it. Now, I hope you don't. But he says that you're like that when you return to your sin. Like a pig that has been cleaned, you'll jump right back in the mud. He says that's the true proverb. He says we act like that, but that's not how it should be. In fact, in Romans 6, Paul made this declaration because he wanted them to understand that we should not be living in this manner. So in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 12, he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. In other words, I, you know, I'm, not going to, I'm not going to keep going back to the old life I once was. In fact, here's the thing. is Paul made a statement. He said, you know, Can I continue in sin that grace may abound? Because the dirtier I am, the more clean he has to make me. And therefore, I look really good. He says, man, once you've decommitted to sin, once you've cast that old man, once you've buried it in the ground, he said, leave it there. Don't keep going back to it. Don't keep pulling up the roots. Don't keep pulling at the bones. Leave it in the ground. Walk in the newness of life that you've found in Christ. Try to do your best not to sin any longer. Man, as Christians, that should be what we pursue in our everyday walk. He says, but just in case you fail, know this. He says that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. I love that word advocate. Now, I want you to, I want to read a couple of secular definitions of it. According to dictionary.com, it's a person who publicly supports or recommends a particular cause or policy. Merriam-Webster says it's one who pleads the cause of another. Wikipedia says it's a professional in the field of law. The word that John uses here is the word called parakletos. Parakletos. It means someone who comes alongside of you. It's the very same word that's used in the gospel of John when he speaks about the Holy Spirit who is going to be your comforter, who's going to be your helper. In other words, the Holy Spirit comes alongside of you and get this, he never leaves your side. Never. You can't chase him away. You can't push him away. You can't stop him. He is always with you. 
He is always dwelling amongst you. He is within you. If you're a Christian, he's within you. And the truth is, is he'll convict you of sin. He'll change your life. He'll help you grow. He will give you peace. He will do so many works within your life. But here, Jesus, not the Holy Spirit, Jesus is called your advocate. He's your lawyer. He's the one who stands beside you. Now, I love this because the truth of the matter is, turn with me to Hebrews Turn with me to Hebrews just a few books back. Hebrews chapter 7 is where we're going to start. Because I want you to see that we have this great high priest. And what comes along with this great high priest, this advocate that we have. Chapter 7 verse 24 is where we'll begin. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he's able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such a high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests, which have infirmity. But the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the son who is consecrated forevermore. Now I want you to listen to what this high priest does for us. Number one, he's holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. You got to understand that the high priest, the very first thing he would do was before he could ever make a sacrifice for the sins of the people, he had to sacrifice for himself. He was a sinner. He himself sinned. He himself failed constantly before God. And so he would have to offer a sacrifice first for himself. Jesus didn't have to offer a sacrifice for himself because he was without sin. In fact, Hebrews tells us that earlier in Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed in the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, get this, yet without sin. He didn't need to make a sacrifice for himself. Jesus died for your sins and my sins. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him who knew no sin. Knew no sin to become sin for you and me. He became a sin sacrifice even though he had never once sinned. He was perfect. Unlike this high priest, he didn't have to sacrifice for himself. Not only that, but he didn't have to sacrifice continually. Verse 27 in that chapter, Hebrews 7. Who needeth not daily as those high priests offer up a sacrifice. You got to think about it. Every day in the Old Testament, they offered morning sacrifices, evening sacrifices, sacrifices for their sins and their transgressions. I mean, they were constantly killing animals in the Old Testament time for sin. Constantly people were coming and laying their hands on the back of the necks as the animal would bleed out as their sins were transferred to them. But it had to be a continual sacrifice. In fact, once a year they had the Day of Atonement where they would bring the lamb who would die for the entire sins of all the nation. And they would lay their hands, the high priest would lay his hand on the, high, on the lamb. They would kill it. Then they would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And that would pay for the sins of the nation for the entire year. In other words, God would overlook them. But that lamb never once truly paid for it. He only looked forward to the perfect lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world for all mankind, not just Israel. Man, God... Didn't have to have a sacrifice. Could you imagine if we were still sacrificing for our sins today? I think we'd be on the mosquitoes and I'd be just fine with that. 
There wouldn't be any lambs left. There wouldn't be any bulls left. There wouldn't be any animals like that left. Why? Because we sin so much. And yet his perfect sacrifice on the cross paid it all. I love that song. We sing it. Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. He didn't pay some of it. He didn't pay most of it. He paid all of it. He paid for all your sins. You don't have to work for your salvation, but you do have to surrender for your salvation. He came to pay it all, and he came to change your life. Yes, it is true. Jesus will take you just as, he, just as you are, but he will not leave you that way. He came to take away the sins of the world. He did it with one sacrifice. And I love this because you think about this. The high priest would intercede for the people once a year. Jesus doesn't intercede once a year. He intercedes for you every single day. Romans 8, 34. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather that is risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God. Who also maketh intercession for us. Do you need an interceder? Do you need an advocate? Do you need someone who's going to stand by you? Let me tell you something. The devil's up there accusing you right now. He's trying to tear apart your relationship with God. He does everything he can to destroy that relationship with God. But you got one who is right there interceding for you daily. Daily. What a blessing to know Jesus as our advocate. Oh, but look at number two. Come back over to 1 John 2. He's not only our advocate, he's our propitiation. I love this word. Try saying that real fast several times. Propitiation. Verse 2, and he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The word propitiation, according to secular definitions, dictionary.com says it's the action of appeasing a God. Merriam-Webster says it's the act of gaining or regaining the favor or goodwill of someone or something. And Wikipedia says it's the act of appeasing or making well-disposed a deity. It comes from the Greek word halasmus. It simply means this. It's an atoning sacrifice, an appeasement, or a satisfaction. I love the way John MacArthur defines it. He says, it's Christ's sacrificial death on the cross, satisfied the demands of God's justice, thus appeasing his holy wrath against believers' sins. Let me read that again. Christ's sacrificial death on the cross satisfied the demands of God's justice, thus appeasing his holy wrath against believers' sins. Jonathan Edwards preached the message, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Let me tell you something. A lot of people say, well, anger is a sin. Well, actually, the Bible says be angry and do not sin. So there's obviously a way to be angry and not sin. You just got to read a little bit more scripture to figure that out. Jesus himself went into the temple and he flipped over tables and he chased them out with a whip and he threw their money and their birds and tipped over their cages and did all. I mean, he went in there and he went full on ballistic on them and they asked him why he did it. He said, you shall not make my father's house a den of thieves. It is a house of prayer. God's anger over sin. You got to think about this. God created the world perfect. When you read the creation, it says... And it was good. When he finishes up, he says, and it was very good. 
It was a home where there was no sin. There were no problems. There were no difficulties. There was no death. There were no troubles. And then sin entered the world. And because sin entered the world, it entered into all of mankind. So that you and I are born with a sin nature. And we still, unfortunately, choose to sin. But God made an appeasement. He sent his son. The only one. You think about this. Could you imagine having to give up your child? Could you imagine that? Because let's be honest, I think every parent in here would pretty much say this. I'll give my life for my kid's life. I would absolutely give my life for my children's life. It'd be much easier to give my life than to give my kid's life for anybody. And to be honest with you, I would do anything I could to keep them safe. So when I think about the fact that God... From the very beginning, understood that there would need to be a payment for sin. Now, you say, a lot of people say, well, couldn't God have just started over? The answer is no. He couldn't have just started over. He couldn't have just wiped it clean. Said, you know what? I'm just going to let sin go. God is just. He is holy. He is perfect. And because he's just and holy and perfect, he couldn't just ignore sin. He didn't just want to wipe man out and start all over again. He didn't want to start from scratch. So what he did is he said, you know what? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a way. I'm going to make a way. Why? Because man can't do it. No matter how good you live, no matter how many works you do, no matter how much money you give away, no matter how many things you do for the church, no matter how many poor people you help out, no matter whatever you do, it doesn't matter. It will never get you to God. Ever. And God knew this. Because he's... He's not happy with sin. He's, in fact, angry over sin. And so he sent his son. He sent his perfect son. His son who was glorified and worshipped and exalted in heaven. And he came down here to this rock to live for 33 years. Where he was abused. Blasphemed. Eventually he was beaten. And he was put up on a cross. And please understand this. Man didn't put him on the cross. You say, wait a minute, what do you mean man didn't put him on the cross? It's God that put him on the cross. He wasn't appealing for man. He was appealing the wrath of God. He was paying the penalty for you and me. He took our sins, the very thing that God hates, Christ became. He didn't just become our sin. He literally became sin itself. And he was crucified and died on the cross and was buried. And three days later when he rose up, it was just Jesus, not our sins, that came up. And he did it so that the wrath of God, so that the propitiation of our sins would be laid upon him so that we could be redeemed and atoned. you got to understand that he became the epitome of everything he hated. And he took something that you and I have never taken before, and that's the wrath of God. Let me tell you something. There are going to be some people who will take the wrath of God upon themselves because they refuse Jesus' propitiatory offering for them. There are some people who one day God will forsake them. Why? Because they forsook his sacrifice. And all of God's anger will be poured out on them And they'll spend an eternity in hell. The Bible makes it clear God doesn't want that for you or for me. 
He gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to take the wrath of God upon himself so that our payment would be made. That's what the word propitiation means. And it's used in so many other phrases throughout Scripture. It comes also in the Greek word halaskamaya, which means to make satisfaction for. In Luke 18, 13, they call God the merciful Father. And in Hebrews 2, 17, he's the merciful Father. He's the halasterion, the sacrifice of atonement required to placate God's wrath. In Old Testament, they had the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was a thing called the mercy seat. Now, we, we miss this. I'm telling you, man, read the book of Exodus. It's amazing. But so often we don't read the Old Testament because we think it's not relevant. It's still relevant. On top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. And there's two seraphim to the sides of it with their wings spread to cover the mercy seat. In other words, it is God's mercy being poured out on mankind where the high priest would go in once a year and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat and it would cover the sins of the people of Israel for that year. It would cover over them. Jesus Christ is the one who's seated on the mercy seat. And he is continuously showing mercy to us day after day after day. If you've got your Bibles open to Hebrews, look at Hebrews chapter 9. I want you to see this because I want you to see how amazing the sacrifice was for you. We can't miss it today. Hebrews 9 verse 12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Same chapter, verse 23. Hebrews 9, 23. It was therefore necessary... That the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with blood of others. For them must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. In other words, he's coming back. He's coming back. But I love this because he did it all. He paid it all. He made a way for us all. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that he was obedient to that point. Philippians 2, 7 and 8. But he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, and being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became, listen to this, obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Do you think if God could have found another way, he would have? When Jesus was in the garden, what did he pray? He said, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours be done. He didn't pray that once. He didn't pray that twice. He prayed it three times. Three times he prayed, God, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, your will be done. In other words, if if I can go around becoming sin, if I can go around you placing your anger upon me, if I can go, if there could be another way, and the answer is there wasn't another way. There was only one, as scripturally boldly proclaimed in the Old Testament. 
In Isaiah 53, we see that proclamation beginning in verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He paid it all. Our transgressions, our iniquities, our sins. And he became our propitiation. Now, if you read the rest of that verse there in 1 John 2, 2, look at what it says. This is powerful. And you need to grasp this. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Here's what you need to understand. The sacrifice he made was for everybody. But if you don't accept it, it doesn't do you any good. His sacrifice was enough to pay for the sins of every single person in here. There's not one of us that's too far gone. There's not one of us in here that is too far from the grace of God. There's not one of us in here who can't find grace in the Savior. There's not one of us in here that God can't change your life forever. There's not one of us in here whose sins are too many for the Savior. He died for the entirety of the world. He died for every sin you've ever committed, everything you've ever done wrong. He paid for it. It's paid in full. But you can choose to pay for your own sin. And I promise you, you will not like the receipt. It's only applied to those who surrender to him. 1 John 4.10 Herein is love. Not that we loved God. But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Let me tell you something. There is no greater love in this world than the love that Jesus has for you. Yes, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Are you washed in the blood today? Is he your advocate? Is he your propitiation? Has he paid for your sins? The answer is he has, but have you accepted his payment for you? You can refuse it, but I promise you, you will not like what you get in the end.